like to start off our portion of the show by giving me a taste of a little something we call Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and roll to me. All right. Welcome to year number two of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. And yes, the show is exactly one year old. Can you believe it? And what did I get as an anniversary present? A complete system failure and breakdown of the main computer where I do all the editing and pretty much everything involved with the show. That's why we haven't been around for a little bit. And then, to make matters worse, when I attempt to order a nice, brandy new system straight from the good people at Intel, I receive not one, but two consecutive non-functioning units. So I've been spending my days playing catch with the UPS man. But enough bitching and moaning, that's not what you came for. But before we start, I do want to thank you guys for all the great emails and suggestions I've received over the year, almost none of which I follow, and most of all, your loyalty to the show. Apparently, we've got a lot of rock and roll nerds out there besides me. And hopefully, we'll be around for another year to keep the interviews and musical insight coming. And today is a prime example of what we do. I am privileged to have one of the most uniquely talented singers and musicians of the rock era and one of the few piano players who front their band. Starting in the mid-60s, he co-wrote classics like A Whiter Shade of Pale, Conquistador, and along with his band Procol Harum, helped usher in a new musical term to the lexicon progressive rock direct from england we talk with gary brooker
Our guest today is the founding member and soulful lead singer-pianist for Procol Harum, a band who in the mid-1960s laid the foundation for what would become known as progressive rock. He co-wrote AOR classics like Conquistador, Simple Sister, Hamburg, and the song that's been officially recognized as Britain's most played record of the past 70 years, A Whiter Shade of Pale. It is my honor to welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Gary Brooker. Good evening, Gary. Good evening. How are you? Pretty good. Well, Thank you for doing the show. It's so great to have you here. There's nothing else to do anyway. Good point. We're down. <laughs> so you're slowly coming out of the COVID insanity. The UK is emerging from its lockdown. How have you kept busy musically during the past year? Well, clearing out a lot of things. I've always meant to clear out, but never had the time. In fact, in the course of that, I was clearing out CDs because I had like a thousand CDs. Ones. I've talked about ones that I've got as demos, and most of them have one track on it, you know. And I thought, well, I'll, put, I'll throw them away once I don't want, and the rest I'll put them onto a couple of CDs. Sure. And that's that's what I was doing. I did find a couple of recordings, not particularly old, of Procol Harum of two newish songs. So it was worth doing that because actually they're coming out next week. Oh, great. Well, May the 7th, so it's coming out. So that was worth finding. Absolutely. No, but they're not, they're not old. Uh, you know, they're not from the 70s or 60s. They're, these are just done, well, we're not sure when, but it wasn't more than about four or five years ago, called Missing Persons. So we'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, hope so. It'll be out on a CD available from your favorite retail outlet or Amazon or something. Fantastic. And also, uh, you can download it. Great. Yeah. yeah. This may come as a shock to you, but you are my very first member of the Order of the British Empire that I've had on the show. Oh. How does that feel? I mean, it, it, you know, in America, it's kind of hard to, to wrap our brains around that, but what kind of an honor was that for you? Oh, it was a great honor. Well, of course, you, it's no good being a Republican with something like that. You have to appreciate the good points about monarchies. I mean, our queen, especially in the last few weeks with uh, her husband dying, right. which was, of course, Prince Philip, Duke of Membra, uh, who is, in fact, grandmaster, or was grandmaster of the most excellent order, uh, and I just looked at my certificate here, and I saw that he'd signed it. So uh -oh. the Queen signed it on the top. Um, so I was very pleased to get it. It is a great honour here to have that thing bestowed. It's not done lightly. Mm. You can't bribe anybody. You know, it just comes up out of the blue, and you're happy. Sure. You also get a drink at Buckingham Palace out there. That's not bad. Oh, no. <laughs> Talk a little bit about life growing up in post-war Middlesex, England. That's where you're from, right? Uh, yeah, until I was nine, I was in Middlesex, yeah. You came from a musical household, and father played pedal steel? Uh, no, he didn't. He played Hawaiian steel guitar. Oh, okay. Uh, no, 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 no pedals involved. <laughs> that's right. what I grew up with. I thought that that was music, because mm -hmm. that's all I ever saw or heard. And I thought most women wore grass skirts. <laughs> but by the time I got about to, well, probably when I moved out of that environment, that was when I realized that not everybody had grass skirts and there were other sorts of music. But I was quite happy until then. But it was, you know, it was post-war Britain, which was a bit gray, but you don't know anything when you're little. You know, if you, what you haven't had, you don't miss. The fact that we didn't have anything like coffee, but we'd never had coffee anyway, so we just liked tea. <laughs> sure. What's your earliest memory of hearing rock and roll? Do you remember the first single you bought? Um, oh, I mean, there's a few first impressions of rock and roll. One was hearing Great Balls of Fire, Jeremy Lewis, for the first time. Um, a little bit later, I heard what I say for the first time by Ray Charles. 
Previous to that, I'd heard Little Richard doing well, whatever it was, ripping up or something. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that was very impressive. It's very hard to imagine being there when you first hear that. It's just that it's inexplainable. You think, oh my God, what is this? You know, I mean, I grew up with Chuck Berry as well. And so it seemed like once a month he'd have a new record out. <laughs> a friend of mine had, had a, a really good record player and uh, was a, was right on the pulse. And when it came out on a Friday, the new Chuck Berry, he, he had it at home and we used to assemble there and listen to it. And I mean, you're talking about hearing roll over Beethoven for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there was no radio. He didn't get it anywhere else. He only got it out of a jukebox or in someone's home. Uh, I mean, and all the B-sides on these, these records were very impressive as well. Can't remember the B side of Roll Over Beethoven, but I'm sure you can find it out. Might have been, you know, Memphis, Tennessee or something. And did that influence you to become a piano player? Because, I mean, your playing would suggest a strong understanding of classical music. Yeah, I, I was sent to piano lessons when I was about age five. Uh, and that was learning, well, after the scales and everything, it sort of moves on to classical things. And I continued that when I moved to South End on Sea. I still went to piano lessons, but I think the teacher realized I wasn't really learning anything. And he said, What's the matter? You know, I said, Well, what I'd like to play is I'd like to play that Ray Charles song. Mm. And he actually wrote it out for me. And then he taught me all about chords and a little bit about boogie and left hand. And he instructed me from that side, rather than just sitting there and being able to read music. It was like more how it was constructed and how you could put it down. And I learned to play more complicated chords. And, you know, they were more complicated than what you had in a Chuck Berry song, You know, if you know what I mean. Yes. But I kept this all to myself. This was private. But at school, they found I was a piano player. So I got invited to join a band at school. And um, I was showing them all the chords, and they were really happy because I could just listen to the record and I knew what the chords were. So I was uh, instructing at an early age. And in 1963, you were actually signed to EMI in an R&B band called The Paramounts, which featured Robin Trower as well? Yeah, well, we were all in, from the same town. The Paramounts, we were called. We were from the same town. You know, we were young. We were at school, uh, more or less together. And um, we grew up liking a lot of this music together and playing when we were at school still. And that went on until we got, actually got a contract with EMI, yeah. But I sound a bit croaky. It's because I've actually got hay fever at the moment. There's a lot of tree pollen around, and one of the first times it's affected me. you got the allergies. Yeah, I've got an allergy to it. <laughs> yeah. The Paramounts, were they managed by Brian Epstein's management company? Oh, we, we, yes, we did at one point, yeah. We were there for quite a few years. Well, it seemed a long time. Yeah, no, we had a meeting with Brian and he signed us up. NEMS, which I can't remember what it stood for. Oh, I used no, to know. No idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to know. Yeah. I think it was management services was the last bit. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Anyway, we never saw much more of him after that. But within his organization, they were very good looking after us and they helped us with, uh, with gigs, really, concerts. So you must have been sharing bills with like Beatles and Stones in those early years, I would imagine. Oh, yes. Yes, we did. We, we did a tour with the Beatles. We actually used to play on the Stones tours as well. But that wasn't because of them. We actually knew them from another side of things. Right. So we did the last UK Beatles tour, which was in the UK in 1965. And we were on that show, that show, you know, which toured Britain. I got, I got to know them. They were great guys. 
Did you have any chart success at that point? I know you did covers. Well, in 1964, yeah, we weren't writing any of our own things. Nobody was writing anything for us either. We were still was, yeah, doing covers, you know, like we had Poison Ivy, which was our first release, and that went just about squeezed in the top 30. We did a little bitty pretty one. We did Bad Blood, which was a coaster song, but that got banned by the BBC because they said it was about venereal disease. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny to get banned by the BBC. Was that a Libra and well, Stola song? Uh, it was the coasters. It probably is, yeah. you got to look that one up. I don't know that one. Yeah, I think it is. But then so was Poison Ivy, Libra and Stola. you go from an R&B sound to some of the most progressive in the truest sense of the word music that was ever made oh well it's I mean looking back at the time I think by the time I got to let's say 18 and we retired the Paramounts it's getting a bit tired of covering things if you like I think I wanted to write my own songs that was the first thing I wanted to do and I teamed up with Keith Reed at that point who was writing lyrics and, uh, you know, it seemed that I could actually write some songs. The influence for that sort of music that I was going to write, or did write, came from all the things I'd ever heard. And uh, from all the classical music I'd ever heard, from all the rock and roll and blues I'd ever heard, and from all the Hawaiian music I'd ever heard. It was all kind of inside me, you know, spinning around inside my head. And when I wrote something, it just sort of, I just thought, well, this is a good idea, this has got... And because I'd learned about chords, I could play chords all right. And so but what came out of it was what you hear. You know, White Shade of Pale and called Christador and she wandered through the garden fence mm -hmm. and lots more, hopefully. It was just thought of that all those influences suddenly coming out in a new thing. 
talk about Keith Reed a little bit because it's somewhat unusual for a band to have a dedicated lyricist that isn't also one of the musicians in the band, like a proper member of the group, but he is. Can you explain that songwriting process? Usually Keith would send me his words. Say, oh, I got some new words. Um, he might send, say, six lyric ideas. And I would try and write something to them. Or they would fit a musical idea that I had in both the mood and the, the general meter of them. And that's how it works. And he seemed to like them. And I liked them because that's why I'd written them, because I liked them. Mm. And that was sort of that was all you needed, really. Well, we thought that was all you needed, was to actually write something that you thought was good. That, therefore, was a success to be able to do that. I mean, I wrote called Christador before White Shade of Pale, and I can remember thinking that this would be good for the Beach Boys. Um, wow. But they never got that far. <laughs> I'll have a word with um, one of the Beach Boys. I can't picture Mike Love agreeing to do that song. I'll tell him, I want to hear you do Conquest Store, <laughs> boys. I heard you in another interview make a really great point that it's very rare that a band's debut single isn't just a big hit, but it's synonymous with the band even 55 years later, like you did with White Shade of Pale. I can't think of any other acts. Maybe Elton John with your song. But even at that, White Shade of Pale has outsold it tenfold. Yeah. Give me your thoughts on that. It's a great song, obviously, but why 55 years still being oh, played? I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. To me, it's much easier to think that it's a mystery. I mean, one of the great mysteries. Because I, I mean, I honestly do not think that the words are immediately accessible. I mean, your song you mentioned, I mean, it's quite easy to imagine what it's about and where you are, everything. Right. But with a white shade of pale, that's not easy, lyrically speaking. But it has got an atmosphere which I think it was always there in the, in the idea of the song, but particularly that mixture of a kind of a classical and then I'm just wailing away over the top, really, to Keith Reed's astounding, but very different lyrics. And then we were very lucky in the studio. It was only four track at the time. I think that the sound we got there was kind of the, the best word I've ever heard for it, really, is that it was haunting. And if I hear it today uh, on a radio or something, it still has the same sort of atmosphere and feeling. It doesn't sound dated. It just exists there hanging in the sky. Right. It just exists as this sound. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, internationally, it was a big, big hit. You can't tell me that somebody in Venezuela knew what I was singing about, but they liked the sound of it. And even if they didn't know it, it did not put them off buying this record. It didn't put the French off, and that takes a lot of doing. <laughs> <laughs> you got to point out that it came out before Sergeant Pepper. Yes, it did, actually. I mean, no, we hadn't heard Sergeant Pepper when White Shade of Pale came out, but they had heard White Shade of Pale by the time Sergeant Pepper came out, although it was only probably a month or two later. You know the famous story about John Lennon being at a party with Ray Coleman? Well, that's probably to do with White Shade of Pale. It does. He was just so enthralled by it and was telling anyone who would listen that that's the record they got to listen to. Yeah, he was very keen. Well, he got affected by it, as did quite a few million people. Of course, for it to be John Lennon, that's all right. I don't want to <laughs> belabor it, but you know, one of the things that always intrigued me about Way to Shade of Pale is the lack of a definitive true stereo mix. Because I was thinking your piano got buried and you listened to it, Yeah, which is unfortunate. Can you offer any insight into that, what happened? Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah. With four tracks, you're going to have the lead vocal on one, probably your bass and drums on one, 
I think we probably had piano and guitar on another one and the organ on another one. And that was your four tracks taken up. And then, and then you balance those four tracks. And the way it came out, really, was that there was the vocal and the organ and the rest was going on behind. But there were, it was only recorded in mono. There was only a mono mix. And anything else has been reprocessed. Exactly. Right, right. But it sounded fine in mono. What is it hell did you? One, two, three, four. Just go sleep 
must go sleep Turn the water Shit off with the Bee Gees a little later after that and at that time they were being kind of described as Baroque pop whatever that means I think their audience was more teeny bopper in origin than Procol Harems they used a string orchestra on stage was that the seed that sparked what would eventually be the collaboration with Edmonton Canada's Symphony Orchestra I should think that that probably was the start of it I mean it was we turned with the Bee Gees Procol Harem the Bee Gees and they did have a string orchestra with them, which accompanied, you know, their songs, like Massachusetts or whatever it was. Right. Um, I met the orchestra and I talked to them, you know, and I was interested. I made good friends with the viola player. When we came to a Salty Dog, the album, and I wrote that song, nobody could actually think of anything to play on it, <laughs> apart from me. I think BJ Wilson, I think, fair enough, he could, the drummer. But, you know, Robin couldn't think of much on guitar, or the organist couldn't think of anything. And I said, well, I think I'd like to try and do a string orchestration. So that was the result. And the, this Victor from the uh, orchestra, the viola player, he helped me put it together. And I used to check with him when I said, <clears throat> I'm writing these notes. Will they be all right on the viola, cello, violin? And he would say yes or no. And that, I think, the interest that that created, the, the, the particular song, The Salty Dog, with a string orchestra, led on to us playing at the Stratford Festival in Canada and people from the Edmonton lot saw us at the Stratford Festival playing with an orchestra and on it went. So yes, playing with the Bee Gees probably started that. Conquistador, the live version from that concert. Huge hit in 1972. I understand that that was an afterthought in terms of the set list? It was, yeah. I mean, Conquistador was on our first album, the actual tune. Right. And going up, when we were on our way to Edmonton, um, I did think, hang on, we haven't really got anything fast in here, anything up-tempo, a little bit more rocky or whatever you want to call it for Procore Arm anyway. Yeah. Everything else I'd worked on, I'd worked on in Helters in I, which of course was a mammoth piece at the time. Um, Wailing Stories, I'd done that. I orchestrated that, I mean. So that was ready to go. The Salty Dog and a couple more from our repertoire. I'd written all the orchestra and choir for. 
And I was sitting on the plane on the way up there, and I thought, well, you know, I don't know why I thought Conquistador, but I then thought, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not got much of a Spanish atmosphere in the original at all, but of course, Conquistador was one of these horse-backed warriors, if you like, of the Spanish, if you like, invasion of South America and Central America. Right. That's why I thought. That's why I thought he was anyway. So I couldn't just orchestrate the original version of Conquistador. I just imagined it a bit bigger, a bit different. And with, of course, it then had the introduction, which was sort of, you know, reiterating the calls in some way, but getting some horse galloping in there and getting a trumpet, which was actually had to, had to, well, it's mariachi, isn't it? It's pure mariachi. It is. But that's Central American anyway. It just gave it a lot more atmosphere and made it a bit more interesting piece, and it worked on the night. Help me settle something with that song, because if you look up online the lyrics, you can look it up four times and get four different results. Oh, really? The refrain, although I hope for something to find, I could see no maze to unwind or lace. Yes. Or th- no, no, maze, M-A-Z-E. That's what I thought. If you look it up, it says lace. Yeah. Even on Wikipedia. Well, I've seen one version where it wasn't even called Conquistador. It was called Come Kiss the Door. Oh, <laughs> No, I mean, come kiss, come the, kiss door. the door. Wow. Just to 
Well, I want to switch topics yeah. a little bit and talk about something that I don't know how many of our listeners even realize, but you played piano on George Harrison's 1970 debut effort, All Things Must Pass, specifically on My Sweet Lord. Can you tell me how that came about? Yeah. Um, let me think. Well, I mean, George, when we were on tour with the Beatles, George was always very friendly. That's 1965. We come to sort of 1967, and I've seen them a few times in the course of moving around because now we're famous. We've got a big number one hit, but they're still the Beatles. And you, you, you run into them now and again. Anyway, I used to go to some nice clubs and that where George would be there. And Paul McCartney was a good club goer as well. And Ringo, in fact. <laughs> they all like clubs. But um, that sort of continued in that you're always in touch with your fellow musicians and artists. But I don't mean you're in touch. But if you haven't seen somebody for 25 years and you saw them tomorrow night by chance in a restaurant, it would be as if you'd seen each other yesterday. Right. There's just that, that sort of relationship usually between musicians and singers and everything that respect each other. And I just got, I was sitting at home 1960, whenever it was. Um, oh, I think it was probably 1969. I've always thought it was. Yep. And I, I lived around the corner from uh, Abbey Road. And there's a call saying, uh, George, I'd like you to come and play. He's making an album. So I was around. It took me 10 minutes to get there. <laughs> and, I, and I was there. And, of course, there was quite a, a large gathering. I was enthralled because Phil Spector was in the uh, control booth. Mm -hmm. uh, George was there and welcomed me and everybody. And that was nice. But they had good players there. Uh, two drummers. Uh, Ringo was one of them. Can't remember the other one. It'll be on the LP. Yeah, either Alan White or, uh, or Jim Keltner. It wasn't Jim Cole. I think it must have been Alan White. Alan White. I think Eric Clapton would have been. Yeah, I think Eric Clapton was there. There was about five people strumming. Um, I remember the two Badfinger guys were there. Well, yeah, it's right. Two boys from Badfinger. Yep, yep. Uh, they were strumming. George was strumming. Eric was strumming. There was plenty of strum going on. <laughs> yeah. There was somebody else. I think somebody was playing the harmonium. I was playing the piano. Uh, you know, tambourine players and... Well, you know, there's uh, quite a lot of people anyway. Um, a lot of takes or? No, no. No? No, we, we, we had to learn it, but it didn't take once or twice run through. And nice. then it was, it was, let's take it. And then we were, we took it, went back into the box to hear it, but it was nothing like what I'd just been playing because it was Phil Spector's wall of sound, you know, full echo on everything. Brooklyn taught extensively for at least that first 10-year incarnation. Any memories of a worse gig? Um, well, you can't remember them all. There were so many good gigs. Well, no, I think we went to play on Long Island once. And, um, well, I mean, the great problem with early program was getting the decent piano. And then that piano had to be in tune with the Hammond organ because you could not change either tuning quickly, you know. Of course. So a piano had to be tuned to a certain pitch, say 440, just like the Hammond is, tuned, is, is at. Uh, otherwise, the two instruments were out of tune. And so that was our continual bane, was getting that right. And, you know, just how many phone calls every day to make sure that the piano had been tuned. And we went to Long Island to play, said, has the piano, is it piano tuned all the same? Question. Yeah, yeah, he worked it down to his fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see it, and there was dust all over the keyboard. That had been touched. Uh -huh. And I, I tried it, and it was most appalling. It was unplayable. So we actually walked out. 
it was some kind of mafia connection promoter and he was going to kill us all. And then he decided we weren't worth it. But that was why it was the gig that wasn't, because we walked out. But that always sticks in my mind, that particularly the death threats. Yeah, I'd call that a bad night. <laughs> a good night. I mean, you certainly have trouble beating Edmonton, because it was a fabulous sound playing with that symphony orchestra and choir. Right. The end of it, Elters and I, was like, oh, everybody was lifted up, rose from their seats floating in the air. But apart from that, we had most, most gigs were, were, were pretty good. You know, I used to like, we did a lot of uh, college gigs in the early days, in 68, 69 and that. And they were great things because they were good audiences. Yeah. And it was, the time was right. You know, we, we built up a lot of good kudo in those years playing. And today, even today, people will come up to me, you know, some professor of law or say, hey, I saw you in 1968 in uh, Utica or wherever it was. They're now professional people and academics of different sorts. And they started out as Proko Aram fans. See that? That must be a great feeling. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you, when you play in universities, campuses. Of course, of course. <laughs> I don't know if this is an appropriate question, but you've had so many different incarnations of Proko Aram. When you think of that lineup with yourself and Matt Fisher and Robin and BJ Wilson, God rest his soul, uh, and Dave Knights, do you consider that the definitive lineup or do you not think in those terms? Uh, I don't think of those terms, and I, I wouldn't agree that we've had so many lineups. I mean, that was our first lineup, and really the next one was when Mick Graham came in on guitar and Chris Copping on organ, and that lasted what seemed forever, I think, actually. It was only about five years, but it seemed like a lifetime. Right. Um, I think we did have one little change right on the last album of that era. Uh, where Pete Solly played the organ and Chris Cobbing went on to bass. Right. BJ was always there. Um, I was always there and never seemed that different to me. You know, it's not like, hey, we're going out on tour, let's find some new people. No, right. It's never been like that. Being in program is a bit more social as well. It's, it's a, There's some sort of loyalty in it. You have to be into it. You have to really be into it. <laughs>
My favorite Procol Harum album, one of the greatest albums of the 70s, was Grand Hotel. Well, it was, uh, it was a good lineup. It was the first time that lineup had been in the studio with Mick Rabin, who was a very, very able, a beautiful guitarist, in fact. Um, we did four albums with Mick. Probably would show over the case, of course, of four years, probably. Although it now seems like a lifetime, but he played he played such memorable stuff. He was never following what Robin Trower had done, because uh, if you went down that alley, uh, that would be a disastrous way to go. You've got to be your own man, and Mick Graham was his own man, and he played his own guitar, and he added a new musical area to Procol Harum that hadn't been there before. Sure. And much more musical than Robin Trout. Robin Trout was so unmusical that it sounded like there was this devil going on. You know, there was this underlying influence. But it's only because he couldn't play more than four chords. Okay. With the greatest respect, I uh, say that. Right, because, right. He, because he didn't know a lot of the chords that I was playing, he then played big bass, big bottom notes on the guitar. Right. Or, or popped up the top screaming just over a whole section of chords, you know. And that was a new thing. But now you often hear that power bottom guitar note backing up chords and that. But Robin invented it, really. You consider that album one of your favorites? Which one? Grand Hotel. Oh, sorry, that's Grand Hotel. Shampoo and bursting brain. 
long time since we've been in the studio. We've done broken barricades. Then Robin left. We had a little bit of a changeover. And of course, then we did Edmonton. That was our next release. By the time we got to the Grand Hotel, we hadn't really been in the studio for two or three years or written any new songs. Right. So there was, there was a lot of ideas going on. Um, usually, I find a lot of the songs on there are quite schizophrenic. They seem to have two parts. Well, they are, in fact, probably two songs welded together. But it was a, you know, it was a brand new studio, Air Studios. We had a great producer, Chris Thomas, and you know, we were riding high. Really, it was the last poke at messing around with orchestras for a while. Mm -hmm. We thought, well, we haven't really since we've been salty dog, but nothing since. Let's put some orchestra on some of these in a, in a nice studio atmosphere. I suppose Grand Hotel was the the actual song was was all all in that really. And then we moved on to, back to rock and roll after that album. Well, we mentioned Libra and Stoller earlier, and they produced an entire album for you guys. Yeah. I think there was some idea that because they were songwriters, and Reed and I were songwriters, that there would be something really in common. And Libra and Stoller also produced and got songs onto vinyl. Yeah, that was their job as well. Right. And they had done that with many people, from Benny King to the Drifters, to, and lots more, you know, good track record. And But also, very importantly, at that particular point where we were thinking we need a different producer, they came to England and produced, I think they produced an album with Steeler's Wheel. And that showed us that A, they were alive, B, that they did come across the pond, and C, that they were willing to work with outside people. Right. You know, it didn't have to be black people or, or Americans or anything. So we approached them and they said, yeah, we'd like to do that. And so over they came and... You know, they had a strange way of working, Jerry and Mike. How so? I mean, the first day's recording, uh, I think it was about 7.30, when Mike and Jerry said, well, we're off to dinner now. So we said, oh, all right then. What time do you meet back? They said, we're coming back. We're going for dinner. That's the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> we wow. sat there in the studio the rest of the day playing old Lieber and Stoller songs to ourselves. Yeah. So they kept workman's hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Half past 10 till half past 7. And you probably used to work until 2 a.m. Which was actually, is a long enough day. You know, there was nothing nothing wrong with that at all. And you had a big hit, Pandora's Box. Well, that was a fantastic effort. I'm very glad. I mean, by that time, of course, it really helped an album if you had a, a hit on it, you know, just to make people where you had one out. So I, I expect we needed that. We didn't write Pandora's Box as a commercial hit single. Right. But... It had the things that Proko Arm songs have, you know, a bit quirky, strange lyrics, um, a tune that nobody had heard before, and an approach. But the mix, Lehman Stoller did for it, was, I mean, and I thought it was fantastic when I first heard it. I thought, well, is that us playing? Is that what we recorded? It was. It was just the way they put it all together. Wonderful rhythm and everything. Yeah. 
Now, shortly after, in 1977, you guys broke up. What led up to that? I think um, there's lots of things, but I think that we went to Miami to make uh, what was by then our 10th album, Something Magic, and, well, we had a lot of songs for it, but, the, well, we had chosen to work with a couple of guys in Miami, the Criteria Studios. We thought that would make a change, be something a bit fresh and new. Um, of course, it's a wonderful place to go and make a record in, in Miami. But they didn't seem very keen on the songs that we had. They liked two or three of them, but generally they weren't very impressed. Now, who were they? Um, who were the producers? Ron and Howie Albert. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yep. And they really did not encourage us there. Now, there was a few other ideas that were around, and I had one. Keith had written this very long story thing called The Worm of the Tree, and I had now and again been thinking about it and working on it, um, but it wasn't by any means finished or uh, um, the thought was not really congealed. But they suddenly thought, well, that was a good idea. So we did it. Uh, and I, I put uh, orchestra on it as well. And that made up half the album, really, because it was nearly 20 minutes long. Mm. It was spoken word. It wasn't even singing. I never got that advanced with it to actually sing these words. So I spoke it. And we, so we finished the album there. And there we were, 1970, the end of 1976. The Eagles are next door in the studio making Hotel California. Disco is churning out all over the place. And the punks have chucked any decent band out of Britain. <laughs> what have we come up with? A 20-minute long spoken word fairy tale. And we did think at that point that we'd sort of gone full circle. And maybe it was just time to just like, we've gone full circle, it's over. Mm. And we just stopped. We didn't say, let's have a year off or anything like that. We just stopped. And we all said goodbye to each other and went out separate ways. Well, the obvious follow-up question to why the breakup, what was the motivating factor to get Prokoharm back together and back on the road? Well, the internet, really. Mm. Well, I mean... Just as the internet started and America Online started, and people talked, there was chat rooms and things. And somebody sent me the transcripts of this chat room. And there was this there was a girl talking to a boy or a man talking to a woman, I don't know how old they were. And she said, or I can't remember who said, but one of them said, What about, do you like music? You know, he said, Yeah. Well, who's your favorite? And this guy said, Procol Harum. And she said, Procol Harum. I don't believe it. I thought I was the only person in the world that liked Procol Harum. This is like in like 1980, whatever, 88, 89, when the internet started to boom. And then somebody else phoned in or connected or came to the chat and said, yeah, I think Procol Harum too, always have. What's happened to him? And suddenly there were about 90 people in the chat room and they were all regretting the loss of Procol Harum and what happened. Where are they? Hmm. What, what that made me think at that point was, oh, there's somebody out there that is concerned that actually still still likes us. <laughs> and actually, I did some American DJ things. They got together in London a few times, about six radio stations from America, came with DJs, and then they had all the live, the old stars for, in England would be invited, you know, go out and have a chat with the DJs. And I went to several of these, and I was amazed that... These DJs were still talking of us in very nice terms. Oh, yeah, let's have a simple sister, yeah. Let's do a whiskey train, you know, whatever it was. And they're still playing it. I mean, so it was like we'd never gone anywhere right. to these American DJs. 
And that greatly encouraged me. Anyway, all those little thoughts, I thought maybe we could try to do something again. And I asked Keith Reed about this and he agreed. So we tried to write some songs and, and they worked all right. And it, it went from there, you know. We got, you know, Robin came and played on that one. Matthew Fisher came and played on it. You know, some of those relationships weren't to last, but it seemed a good idea at the time. Sure. And anyway, it got us back and we've been strong ever since, really. Although we still haven't put out an album every year by any stretch. How do you feel the music business has changed? I mean, we all know how it's changed. But is it more conducive to the way you like to work or less conducive? Do you like the old way better in terms of big marketing record companies? Or do you prefer you can practically do everything yourself now and cut out the middlemen? Well, middlemen can be a dirty word. Or it can also be a very, very fine way for somebody to make a living. Um, yeah, you know, groups through the years have had good and bad experiences with record companies. I mean, we spent a lot of personal time with A&M who were a fine company. And also we spent a lot of time with Chrysalis, who were a fine company. And we worked very closely with the people involved. They were interested when you went in to make a new record. I mean, we wouldn't have made Edmonton without A&M. We couldn't have afforded at the time to have taken a recording truck from California to Edmonton. Of course. Just on the chance. <laughs> they backed the idea. Um I miss those days when the record companies were adding something. I don't think they hardly exist now. And when the accountants got involved, the accountants started taking over. Instead of a record company saying, you know, what, these boys have got something. And maybe the first album, maybe even the second album doesn't do so good, but they stick with it. And then suddenly the third album, it's gold, you know, and they finally made it. But they believed in the talent and the artists. Right. That is not there anymore. Now, if your first album doesn't sell, the accountants say, hey, we lost money on that. They're out. End of that. I miss record stores. I miss the hard fact of holding something. Vinyl's making a bit of a comeback, for sure. Oh, well, there we are. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a whole generation of kids now who don't want to just download songs. You must be familiar with Record Store Day. Your first album. Yes, was yes I'm was familiar with that. All right. Yeah. So your first record was repressed last year, I believe. I don't think we're back to ground. We aren't back to ground zero yet. No, <laughs> no, no. What's the next project that we can look forward to? As I said at the start there, we have Missing Persons EP coming out, Procol Hunt, uh, on May the 7th. You can sort of look that up somewhere and find it. Of course, we're still in COVID. There are no gigs yet. Right. We actually have one on July 3rd at Hampton Court Palace in London. We don't know if it will go ahead. We won't know for another two or three weeks. Well, that's cutting it close, huh? Oh, it's the very last opportunity, yeah. yeah. It is cutting it close. But the government will not say, if they drop social distancing, it will go ahead. If there's social distancing, it won't. I want to thank Gary Brooker for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And Brooklyn Harem's new EP, Missing Persons, is available on Amazon and wherever fine music is streamable. I know, it's not a real word. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, and if so inclined, leave a five-star rating and a kind word or two in the review section. Remember, all of our past shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, all typed out as one word, no spaces or commas, please. Until next time, kids. Bring it home, the bacon. Steaks.